Experts in Their Field, a podcast from the Agricultural Science Association. Hello listeners, my name is Neve Bambrick and I'm the President of the Agricultural Science Association. In this episode of Experts in Their Field, Council Member Oliver Burke chats with one of his neighbours from home, John Hickey. John graduated from Ag Science in UCD and then travelled to Kenya in South Africa. When he returned from his travels, he pursued a master's in animal genetics and then followed this with a PhD in the same area of study. John then went on to work in animal genetics and then evolved into working in the plant breeding section. This then led him to his current role as head of corn product design in Bayer Crop Science. We'd like to thank John for taking his time to speak on our podcast and we wish John and his family all the best into the future. Welcome to the next episode of Experts in Their Field. I'm joined here uh, by John Hickey and John is from Castle Coote in County Roscommon. He's a neighbour from just up the road from myself. He hails from a sheep farm and has a, a sheep farming background. Um, and we spent some good times together during the summer, drafting ram lambs and bringing in bales and getting sunburned over the years. And I think uh, you were a strong taskmaster back then, John, and I, I'd say you probably still are, no doubt, which is a good thing. Um, John trained as a quantitative geneticist with specialism in animal breeding in Edinburgh and uh, Wageningen. He undertook postdoctoral research in Australia and Mexico in the application of genomic selection in crops and livestock. And thereafter, he held a faculty position in the University of Edinburgh for eight years. So then in October 2020, he joined Bayer Crop Science as head of corn product design. Uh, John, it's brilliant to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting an insight into your career. Um, how are you? Not not too bad, Oliver. It's... it's uh few years since we've 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 talked it's nice to see you and yes we we had a lot of fun together back in in the day uh working away on the farm and and doing various things like that and and yeah you were you were a, a very strong uh young man i remember who could do a lot a lot of work well sure my training ground up in craig's was just up the road <laughs> Indeed, indeed, with the rugby club, yeah, yeah. So since then, that was probably the early two thousands, John. So you were you were in UCD at the time. Yes, yes, I think Oliver, you you moved to Roscommon maybe when we you were early secondary school. I was late secondary school, and and thereafter, yes, I went to UCD to do agriculture. I did animal and crop production. I graduated in two thousand three. Oh, very good. The very it was. I did ACP animal crop production myself. Um, so what really? I suppose you you come from a a very strong agriculture background. Um, what really spurred you? Did did you know at the time that you wanted to do ag science, or was there anything else on your radar? I never had anything else on my radar, Oliver. Uh, my father, as uh, the same as yourself, my father was had studied agriculture. And we had we had a farm when we were when we were young, and I I was always interested in in agriculture, and you know I used to read the farmers journal every week, that sort of thing. We very involved on the farm as a child, and um, 
just something I was very interested in. And it was a sort of, I never considered anything else. And, and I've always enjoyed working in agriculture. Um, yeah. And I suppose the, I, I suppose I'd know as well. It's the, the the practical side of agriculture has always been something that you've you've worked very hard at. But moving into the academia side, at, in your time in UCD, you, you you proved yourself quite quite well by by getting the award for the outstanding achievement and things. But what was your area like? What really took your interest as an undergrad in UCD? Well, I did ACP, so that's general agriculture and, and and I wasn't specifically interested in any aspect of agriculture I I was interested in 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 the you know broad broad area the whole area um I, I think retrospectively I mean and I even I remember in in UCD at the time having a more of an interest in in the international element of agriculture where where agriculture fitted in the whole world and where Irish agriculture fitted in the whole world. I remember being particularly interested in that. And towards the end of my time at UCD, in, in the third year when we did the practical work experience, I, I went to Africa. Uh, I was, I think, three or four months in, in Kenya at an agricultural, research, agricultural college that was training extension workers for East and Central Africa. And when I came back from that experience, I remember wondering if I wanted to do further training in international development uh, or, or in a technical area. And I talked, I, I remember speaking with Morris Boland at the time, and, and he advised me to pursue the technical area that I could always work with my technical skills in the international development space if I wanted to do that at a later stage. And, and, and for me, that, that, was, uh, that fitted my interests, I think. And I, I went on then to specialize in animal breeding. We, we had textile sheep on the farm when I was a child. So we were breeding sheep and interested in the genetic aspect of that. And the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation was was being founded you know, late 1990s. So genetics was a hot topic. Uh, and so I ended up pursuing a specialization in genetics. And then you switched, didn't you? So you, you specialized in animal genetics. Is that correct? Yes, so I did my my masters in Edinburgh, and Edinburgh has a long history. Probably one of the three institutions in the world that has, over many years, been to the fore in animal genetic improvement, animal breeding. And so I happened to go there for a masters, and. Um, yeah, from the very first day in Edinburgh, the first morning, I, I really thought this stuff is really interesting. And that, that's 2000, that's September 2003. So what are we now? 2023. So that's 20 years ago this year. So I've been working in, in this field for 20 years. And I've never once had a day where I wasn't really excited about the things I was doing. I just found this animal genetics, quantitative genetics to be a fascinating topic. There's always something new. There's always something to learn. Uh, I trained in animal breeding. Um, when I was doing my on my master's and my PhD, it was a, a different era for animal breeding. It was the pre-genomics era. You know, the, uh, the, the methodology was based on knowing the pedigree of animals. Uh, then at Towards the end of my PhD, the genomic era 
really started to, to change things. So genomic technology, it allows us to measure the genomes of the individuals and then to use the knowledge of, of what that measurements of those genomes are in the place of the pedigree um, to be more precise and to, to, it opens up lots of lots of things. So I, I, my subsequent career was was you know in the early phases of this genomic era, a very exciting time to be in the field. The whole thing was being disrupted. Everything that we thought we knew was being questioned and uh, needed to be rebuilt, if you like. Uh, through that genomic technology, I happened to get exposed to to plant breeding, uh, and, and then I my my interests evolved. And over the last ten years or so, or my my just my the work I did on a day to day basis increasingly evolved into working on plant breeding, and ultimately about three years ago now I joined Bayer. So, so you, you you made a switch then essentially. You know, you're 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 in the international public institution sector, really, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So after I went after Edinburgh for the masters, I went to the Netherlands to do to do a PhD. Uh, it was actually funded by by Chagas, who was a Walsh fellow, and it was on the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation data. So so that was what I was working on. Um, during that time, I I happened to do a course in Norway for a couple of weeks with a person that was working in Australia. And I, his, Julius van der Werf is his name. And, and I identified Julius as a person that was really good at training people. I, I could see that he, he really had this talent for education. And, and I decided then to target uh, to do a postdoc with Julius. It so happened that when I finished my PhD, Julius was part of a project that was introducing genomic selection into the sheep industry in Australia, a very large $30 million project. They were going to do lots of things and they needed a few postdocs that would be helping along the way. So I was fortunate enough to get that position and I then moved to Australia. I spent four years in Australia. The first year or two, I was working on that genomic selection project in sheep. But subsequent to that, then we had a project working on uh a particular aspect of developing algorithms to to enable genomic selection in the pig and poultry industry with with genus who genus PIC which had at that time 25% market share in the pig industry globally and aviagen which at that time had a 40% market share in the poultry industry so again a different dimension it gave me a real exposure to uh developing and deploying technology at scale and the impact that technology can have at scale in, in, in a global agricultural setting. So, yeah, I was four years in, in Australia. really learned a lot there. You mentioned there, John, just I suppose you've been at this now for 20 years and things have evolved. You mentioned disruptive technology there. So how, I suppose, from a layperson's point of view, Data management and, and implementation of making that work in practice in an industry is, is absolutely key to what you've been able to achieve over the last few years. How important is disruptive technology and do you have any examples of the latest innovations? Yes, and Oliver, that's been one of the fascinating things for, for me, for, for many people that have been working in science over many years. You know, There's always something new. Um, then every now and then something really big comes 
and and in our case in my case in, in the in this animal breeding plant breeding field that was genomic technology which it's very simple at its core it's simply the ability to measure genomes but it disrupts how you know how you set up breeding programs the types of skills you need to run breeding programs the types of infrastructure you know large infrastructure that might have been built to enable and facilitate previous technology is no longer relevant or needs to be replaced with something uh, at, at this moment we're probably finishing that genomic wave you know it's beginning to reach a steady state i would say uh, there are promising technologies that that but but you would have to ask yourself will they have the same disruptive impact that the genomic technology has had in the past 20 years uh maybe maybe it's a bit too early to say but one of them obviously is is genome editing so you know genome editing promises the ability to really control the genome edit the genome generate very precise refinement of the genome it really gives us control over processes that have been subject to randomness for a long time and if we have if we can remove some of that randomness we can be more precise however we have to know an awful lot about biology um to make it work and, and i think that will be the challenge uh can we know enough about biology and are there sufficient incentives to stimulate the investment that's needed to understand enough about biology to unlock the potential of, of this technology? I, I think that will be an interesting thing in the next years. Uh, you, you also pointed to the data, um, Oliver, and I, I think there's you know obviously two, two dimensions there. There's our ability to measure things drones, uh, imaging technologies, sensors. We can measure an awful lot more than we could ever before. I, I think that will be important. It's less disruptive because it's simply giving us more of what we want and can use. I don't think it requires us to fundamentally change the paradigm. Um, but maybe the, the artificial intelligence does the artificial intelligence you know i've I, I probably perhaps like yourself i've had a little play with chat gpt on on a friend's phone and it's pretty powerful i mean it, it can speak it can have a conversation with you you can ask it questions and clarifying questions and it can it comes back with intelligent answers it's in very early stages with with what it can do i'm sure but but you know, it, it can be a, a very important technology, I think. Do you see a role of universities then, John, uh, in, in this type of innovation and, and training in that space? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I've worked in, in, in both sectors, Oliver, as you know. Um, and they, they have different, we need them to do complementary things. Uh, you know, industry needs to focus on delivering 
products that have near-term and medium-term value in the marketplace. And it needs to do that at scale. It's harder for industry to really do the blue sky speculative long-term innovation. But that's where the technology of the future comes from. And, and we need universities working on, on that. Uh, we also need universities training people uh, to become more innovative appliers and better appliers of existing technology. So, so universities have to play this dual role of, you know, pushing the frontiers, but also building the the knowledge base for the technology that's that's being used today and will be used probably for the next 15, 20 years. So you said their knowledge, John. So say we're moving into, you know, data and what does that look like? Is is intellectual property and, and data ownership and stuff, is that going to have any influence on say new technologies will will, will that be a, a barrier or is it something that you see is it'll just progressively move on yeah that's a, that's an interesting question um so, so on, on the intellectual property side of things um you, you know I, I i i read a lot of economic history and and, and i don't think it's just from that literature i i don't think it's absolutely certain that uh, patenting you know is a way to ensure that we get innovation at the rate at which we need it as a society um, it's also not clear that it isn't the way so I, I think it's I, I think the economists maybe have different views on that and they're the experts um, my personal view as a, as a geneticist would be that uh, we need to create incentives for the innovators. And that can be through uh, patenting. It can be through uh, scale and driving the impact at scale. Uh, and I think as a society, we need to you know, have all options and all routes uh, at, uh, in play. The, the bottom line is society moves forward um, when innovation happens, uh, and we need to f we need to ensure and create the opportunity for innovation. W with respect to data, I, I think there's um, you know obviously there's a lot of proprietary data. I mean, Bayer collects billions and trillions of data points. Uh, if we count genomic data, we collect trillions of data points every year on all our crops from all over the world. Proprietary data, huge amounts of it. Uh, there's lots of public sector data as well in in from you know variety trials that are done all over the world, university trials that are done all over the world, um, government trials, etc. In other industries, if you take the cattle breeding industry, a lot of the data historically has been um, public. Public publicly available data. There is a trend towards proprietary data in the dairy industry. The pig industry has is is mostly proprietary data. Uh, it's horses for courses. I think it's um, you, you know we need we need both, and and we need to create the space for both to coexist. I think. 
And I suppose as well as that, John, like it's the, the people, the users are at the, at the, the core of these. Um, you know, it, it takes somebody with an incredible amount of knowledge and, and, and expertise, but I suppose there is the fundamental soft skills involved in trying to get people on board and particularly in, in research and, and industry. Uh, what would you see is the, you know, if you were to speak to a UCD graduate coming out now, what would you think would be the key areas if they wanted to pursue a career like your own, uh, the key skills? Sure. So, so I, I, I think Oliver, I, I've kind of had three different types of, of jobs. I've worked in the university sector as a researcher, um, you know, trying to push the boundaries of knowledge, right? Uh, I've had some involvement in the international public institution space where it's about trying to get the right technology into the hands of, of some of the poorest people on earth, right? Uh, and now I'm working in, in a multinational global company. I think to succeed in any of those environments, you know, there are two big buckets of skills. One is uh, the technical knowledge that you bring to the table to solve a particular problem or to contribute to a team that solves a particular problem. And you also need the soft skills to, you know, how to enable you contribute, right? Uh, in the university sector, there's a big emphasis placed on the technical skills. You know, you can't push the boundaries of science without really strong technical skills. So I would encourage people to really focus on developing strong technical skills, uh, especially early in your career. I think that foundation of strong technical knowledge um, is really important. It, 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 it is, it, it's the currency in some sense in the university sector. I think in the private sector and in the international public institution, you know, there's more of an emphasis on the development of the soft skills because you're, you're operating in a more complex ecosystem, a lot more, a lot more people in Bayer, there's a hundred thousand people. And if you're trying to operate and influence and uh, partner across a very large organization with a, such a large number of people, you, you need soft skills. If you're working at an international institution that's trying to have some impact on many, many, many smallholder farmers in many different cultures, many different societies, you, you need to have um, many strong soft skills. So, so I would say it's not either or, it, it's both. And maybe at different phases of your career, different phases of your life, you, you place different emphasis on them. Uh, and and depending on on maybe the destination that you're going towards, so um, maybe that that's some thoughts there, Oliver. Yeah, and you, you, I suppose what you've built, you've been able to build um, very, I suppose I assume multidisciplinary teams over the years, and and work with them, and I suppose across across many geographical areas um at the same time in multicultural teams what would you see is the probably the most important thing that you've learned from that and you know if you were to do it again 
or give somebody advice and embarking on that, what what are the main areas that would make it a success? That's that's a very interesting question, Oliver. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the team that I'm part of today in corn product design in Bayer, we have we have people that are spread from Nebraska uh, all the way around to Thailand, you know, and, and almost every time zone in between. And from Hamburg in the north of Germany to uh, quite far down in the south of Argentina or, or in South Africa. Uh, so all over the place. Um, and, yeah, whoa, whoa. everybody is different and every culture is different, but in the end, everybody is the same, right? People, people want to make contributions. People want to grow. People want to have opportunities. People want to have impact. Um, and it, for me, it's about, you know, creating the environment that, that gives them that opportunity to contribute. Uh, people have different styles, different, um, ways of communicating, different ways of getting their message across. And, and probably earlier in my career, I was less equipped to hear what they were trying to communicate because it was done in a culturally different style to the one that, that we grew up in, in Roscommon. We have a particular style uh, and, and you know, in different parts of the world, people have just a different way of, of operating. And, and for me, I think, yeah, that has been the biggest learning is is how to hear these different perspectives. And I suppose it's the, the perspective as well, say from, from the point of view of, you know, Bayer, that from the global objective then as well, like sustainability is, is, is going to be something I think that probably people will have a common goal globally on. Um, you know, how would you describe the impact that, that Bayer is having on driving sustainability? Yeah, I mean, Bayer has a huge impact on sustainability globally. I, 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 Bayer seeds, the seed products from Bayer impact 180 million acres of, of crops in the world. Uh, now, it, not just Bayer, but all of plant science, if we take all of all companies operating in, in corn uh, since the 1940s, there's been a tenfold reduction in the area needed to produce a particular volume of output. So be it a one ton, you know, or whatever, like that's a massive environmentally positive impact. Uh, you know, we have um, a big push now on, on what we're calling regenerative agriculture, which is, uh, you know, producing more, with less um, while regenerating uh, the surrounding nature. And if you think about that tenfold reduction, you know, that's 90% of what used to be used or what we would need to use can now be regenerated. Um, Bayer's technology, it, it enables you to keep the soil covered for more of the year. It allows you to minimize soil 
disturbance. It allows you have more diverse rotations, uh, and it allows you it allows you to um, optimize the inputs and reduce the impacts of those inputs, uh, be it uh, crop protection or or the nitrogen use or 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 any of these things. So if you take the direct seeded rice project that Bayer is is pursuing in 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 Asia, mostly in Asia, but in other parts of the world too. So, so if I if I have the numbers correctly, ten uh, percent of methane emissions come from the global rice crop because we grow you know we grow rice in paddy fields and paddy fields emit a lot of methane. Um, we have a concept called direct seeded rice, which which would allow you grow rice without this water piece. You know the way we grow wheat, right? If we could scale that technology across most of the rice growing areas of the world, there can have a huge immediate and direct impact on methane emissions. Uh, that's just one example. There, there are many, many more, Oliver, you know. Um... That's fantastic, John. Um, I know it's we only have a limited amount of time, um, but I, I could sit and, and speak to you for for a long, long time, but we will catch up in person soon. Uh, where are you? Where are you speaking to me from today? Oh, we live in Malaga, in the south of Spain. Oliver, we moved here a year ago. Um, yeah, Bayer allow you know it enables us work uh, from anywhere we want in the world, more or less. And um, yeah, I work from home here in in Malaga, which is an hour and a half from my wife's hometown of Granada, here in in the south of Spain. So it, it suits us very well to be in Malaga. Probably a lot of people know where Malaga is, I'm sure. Very common destination for agricultural science graduates on Ryanair. I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, thanks a million, John. A really insightful conversation. Um, and as always, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm so impressed by your journey from um, our summers drafting ram lambs in Roscommon to through you see you're you've a, you've a very interesting career um as an ag graduate uh animal crop production um and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you well thanks for the opportunity to speak to you oliver this morning and uh, yeah it's a, a pleasure as always and um maybe in the future if i manage to get a few hectares of olives we could uh we could spend a, a summer drafting olives down here in the south of spain <laughs>